0: Let's pray. Gracious Father, now as we come to the preaching of your word, we ask for your merciful help that you would supply us by your Spirit with a great understanding to this particular text of Scripture, that we might be able to listen and hear your words in the preaching of this passage, that we might, with hearts that are supple and soft, willing to be changed by the word of God. May we respond rightly to what you have to say to us this morning. May you be glorified in all of this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as all of you know, I have an affinity for great preachers in church history. I've learned so much from the sermons of these powerful heralds of God's word. I'm thinking of the 20th centuries, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the 19th centuries, Charles Spurgeon, the 18th centuries, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards, the 17th centuries, John Bunyan and Thomas Brooks, and the 16th centuries, Martin Luther and John Calvin. Over the years, you've probably heard me quote or reference these great preachers in my own preaching. Well, this morning, friends, I want to go further back in church history, all the way to the fourth century to the city of Antioch in ancient Syria. And I want to introduce you to a man who's commonly described as the greatest preacher in the early church. His name was John of Antioch, but he's better known as John Christostom, which in Greek means the golden mouth. So listen to what This golden mouthed preacher had to say about one of the most powerful forces in the world. This force is so powerful, so potent that it has, quote, subdued the strength of fire. It has bridled the rage of lions. Hushed anarchy to rest, extinguished wars, appeased the elements, expelled demons, burst the chains of death, expanded the fates of heaven, assuaged diseases, dispelled frauds, rescued cities from destruction, stayed the sun in its course, and arrested the progress of the thunderbolt. Now, what in the world is he referring to? What kind of force, what kind of power... What authority could do all of that? Well, friends, John Christostom was preaching on prayer. Prayer is that force. Prayer is that power that can subdue the strength of fire and bridle the rage of lions. Now, he's not just exaggerating. He's not overstating his case. He's simply alluding to story after story in the pages of scripture where the prayers of faith on the lips of faithful saints have caused such powerful effects. Friends, this is not just fancy preaching. This is biblical teaching. The prayer of faith has great power, power to heal the physically sick and to the, and to save the spiritually lost. That's what we're going to see in this morning's text. But if that's true, if prayer is that powerful and that effective, then why don't we see more evidence of that great power in our life together? Could it be that one of the most powerful practices in the life of the church is also one of the most neglected? It's a puzzling fact, and yet sadly, It can be so true. We give far too little attention to prayer, either in our personal lives or in our church life. I think it's inexcusable how the power to expel demons and to burst the chains of death lies dormant in sleepy congregations scattered throughout this land. We saw in the beginning of chapter 5, James issuing woes against the unrighteous rich and how they were hoarding their wealth and they were failing to use it for its God-intended purpose to serve the good of others. Well, church, do you see how that same charge could potentially be laid at our feet when it comes to prayer? Could we be accused of hoarding this precious gift of prayer, failing to use it for God-intended purposes? Oh, let, not, let that not be said of us. May we not be found on that final day of the Lord sitting on a stockpile of divine power, letting it go to waste. Instead, let's be found on our knees, putting prayer to work, exercising true faith, faith that works. That's been the theme of this entire series through the book of James. We've been talking about a faith that goes beyond mere words and mere assent to biblical claims, a faith that goes beyond just good theology and consistent involvement in church life. True saving faith, according to James, is faith that works itself out in good works, in generous compassion, and especially in vibrant prayer. And that's my prayer for us that vibrant prayer in particular would mark our lives together in Christ. That's what this morning's passage is about. We're going to see James addressing two issues here. First, he's going to address the occasions for prayer that you would typically find in a church. And second, the power of prayer that is available to all believers of Jesus Christ. So let's start by considering the occasions for prayer that James assumes will be available in a healthy church. Now, James has in mind four occasions when anyone is suffering, when anyone is rejoicing, when anyone is sick, and when we gather together. Let's start in verse 13. I'll read that again. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. So the first occasion for prayer is when anyone in the church is suffering. James is really concluding his letter by going full circle all the way back to the beginning in chapter one, where he had talked about facing trials of various kinds. So he knows that his audience, these believers are going through hardship. And so when he asks, is there anyone among you suffering? It's clearly a rhetorical question because he knows there are plenty in pain. We've seen how many of these believers have been displaced from their homes in Judea. They are part of the great dispersion, that great scattering of Jews that occurred in the first century. Many of them had to leave their wealth behind and now they were poor. And not only were they poor, they were being oppressed by the rich, by by unrighteous rich landowners. So James is speaking to the poor and the oppressed. And he is calling them to pray in times of such suffering. Prayer is called for, but what does he expect them to pray for? For a sudden windfall of cash, for swift vengeance upon their oppressors, for a full and immediate recovery of any sickness they're experiencing. Now, though it's not inherently wrong to pray for any of that, It's not likely what James expects us to pray here because based on last week's passage that stressed patience through suffering, we can deduce that he expects those in suffering to pray, not just for escape from their trials, but for endurance through their trials I think that's one way to tell that you are actually growing in your faith, that you're growing in your prayer life when you're no longer just praying for belief or praying for escape, but now you are praying for strength. You're praying for perseverance to withstand your sufferings and to endure your trials. So suffering, that's the first occasion for prayer. Well, the second occasion is when anyone in the church is rejoicing Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. James has in mind, of course, the good times, the times of joy. These are times that call for prayer. Now this reminder to turn to God in the good times is even more necessary than in times of suffering. Because in times of trouble, we instinctively drop to our knees in prayer. We go to God. No one has to remind us to pray in those times. It's, In those times of cheerfulness, it's in those times when things are going well, that's when prayer is the last thing on our minds. We're so focused on the joy itself that we take for granted, the joy giver. We're so busy enjoying the good things of life that we forget to praise the one whose gracious hand provided all of it. That's really another way to tell that you are maturing in Christ. When you are turning to God in the good times And not just in the bad. Now, notice with me how James specifically calls us to sing praise. And that's parallel with the prior command to pray, suggesting for us that there is little difference between the two activities. Singing praise to God is simply another form of prayer to God. And that's why I've always found it quite strange, very confusing when you're in a church service, And a worship set has just concluded. And then a a pastor or some other church leader is about to lead in a time of prayer and says something like, Hey, that was a wonderful time of praise. Now, now let's turn to God for a time of prayer. Wait, now we're turning to God to pray. So what in the world were we doing for the last 10 to 15 minutes? Were we just singing to each other church? Let's not lose sight of what we are doing whenever we are singing praise together. It is pure prayer that we're exercising. If we don't see our worship singing as a form of prayer, then we have completely missed the point of worship. Praising is a form of praying. So those are the first two occasions for prayer found in verse 13. When anyone is either suffering or rejoicing. Now, if you look with me in verse 14, you're going to find a third occasion. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The third occasion for prayer is when anyone in the church is sick. In these occasions, James assumes that there is already in place a plurality of elders serving the church as shepherds caring for God's flock, particularly in this case, caring through the ministry of prayer over the sick. Now, the fact that this kind of ministry was readily assumed to be present in this church is a real indictment of the modern contemporary church where this kind of ministry of prayer over the sick is actually quite foreign and sounds a bit strange. I think we're going to benefit from spending a little bit more time sitting on this point. So let's consider here the basic elements of this ministry that involves the elders of the church praying over the sick. Notice with me first that there is some degree of initiative coming on the part of the sick person. He is to call for the elders of the church. Now of course that doesn't mean the elders can never take the initiative and approach the sick themselves, but it does mean that this sick person needs to be someone who is already seeking help from the Lord and now from the Lord's appointed shepherds of the church. It means he is someone suffering and therefore someone who is praying according to verse 13. So it's not as if these Church elders have somehow tapped into some divine power and they can just go around healing the sick, regardless of the state of that person's heart. We're not talking about faith healers. We're talking about elders, shepherds of a church who are called upon by their sheep to pray over them, to add their prayers of faith to the individual's own prayers of faith. So don't expect to see your church elders, walking the halls of the local hospital, laying hands and praying over any sort of sick person. But if you are sick and you've been praying to the Lord and yet you have not recovered, if you call on your church elders, you should expect them to come and to pray over you. Now, the thought of elders praying over the sick may not be all that strange to you, but You might be unfamiliar with this practice of anointing the sick with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, there are three interpretations of the significance of this anointing oil. The first is a sacramental view. The Roman Catholics have used this verse to justify their sacrament of extreme unction. That's where a priest anoints and prays over a Catholic who is at the point of death. The anointing oil is seen as conveying sacramental grace to remove the remnants of sin in the individual and giving the person strength to to experience um, the the, the process of dying. Now, we obviously have disagreements over the entire theological system of sacraments. But, you know, if you notice here in the verse, there's nothing limiting this practice to those who are about to die. So you can't just use this verse to justify uh, the sacrament of extreme unction. This is prayer for anyone who is sick, not just the deathly sick. The second view, though, uh, sees medicinal value in this anointing oil. Proponents would point to Luke chapter 10, to the parable where the Good Samaritan applied oil as a healing balm to the wounds of that man found on the Jericho Road. In ancient days, oil was the go-to cure for everything from toothaches to paralysis. It's kind of like how, you know, my my grandma would use Tiger Balm as the go-to cure for, for any ailment that I would have growing up. You know, when I was a kid, if I had a fever, she would take Tiger Balm, rub that all over my chest. If I had a muscle ache or a twisted ankle, you just Throw and some tiger bomb on that, and 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 you'd be better. Anything, any problem, you could always solve it with tiger bomb. So, in the same way, this oil was seen as having medicinal uh, value to it, and so um, one could say that with that understanding, the elders were essentially coming to the sick armed with both spiritual and natural resources. That means. They were turning to prayer and they were turning to medicine and they were not incompatible actions. There is no biblical justification for arguing against the use of medicine or against seeing a doctor as if that would suggest, would suggest some sort of lack of faith in God's power to heal you. No friends to draw a sharp distinction between God healing you through prayer versus a doctor healing you through medicine would suggest that you have a very small view of God's providence of his providential hand working in and through all things. Yes, there are times in the past and still in the present when God has healed through supernatural means in response to prayer but he ordinarily heals both sinners and saints through natural means such as medicine and medical procedures. Friends, let's not take his ordinary means of common grace for granted. So there is something to be said about this medicinal view of the anointing oil, but you know, there's a third interpretation that I think is even stronger. It's the symbolic view This view interprets the anointing oil similar to the way that priests and kings of the Old Testament would have been anointed with oil. It's the idea of setting apart, consecrating that person or that object, that holy object to the Lord. Considering, of course, how steep the book of James is in Old Testament references, I think it makes sense that these elders are anointing the sick in order to set them apart to consecrate them to God for his special attention through prayer. But if we keep reading in verse 15, we're going to see that the emphasis here is really not on the efficacy of the anointing oil. There's no power in the oil itself. The stress is on the efficacy of the prayer, of the prayer of faith. Look at verse 15. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Now that word for save there is used throughout the New Testament, typically in reference to spiritual salvation, salvation from sin. But depending on the context, it could also refer to physical healing, such as it would here in verse 15, because notice how spiritual salvation The forgiveness of sins is actually separately addressed there at the end of the verse. So, let's look at the second half of verse 15. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. So, notice how James is making a connection between sin and sickness. But notice it is not a one-to-one correlation. He uses the word if, suggesting that Not all our sicknesses are related to our sins, but we shouldn't ignore or deny the possibility. Now, I think the book of Job and John chapter nine about the man born blind, those are passages that make great arguments for caution to not draw a straight line between sin and sickness. But at the same time, sometimes in God's will, we do experience sickness or even succumb to it. And um, it does have some correlation. So though we can't make a universal claim and we cannot draw a sharp straight line between the two, there are places in scripture where we see sickness as a byproduct of sin. Think with me of 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul explains that the reason, quote, why many of you are weak and ill and some have died is because of the sinful divisions between the Corinthian believers and how they were guilty for taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. This, my friends, is why James suggests for elders to come prepared to deal with both physical sickness due to disease which involves prayer and medicine and potentially to deal with soul sickness due to sin, which involves prayer and confession. And that's why there's this mention of confession and prayer in verse 16. Look there. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Okay. So to sum it all up, we can say that this practice of anointing and praying over the sick is primarily aimed at physical healing, but also there's a consideration that sin could be lurking somewhere in the background. And so elders would be wise to shepherd the sick in those cases also towards confession and repentance. So we've seen these three occasions for prayer in the church, but there's one more to highlight before we move on. It's, when prayer when members get together the fourth occasion for prayer is whenever we gather notice the therefore in verse 16 it's in li- in in light of all of these considerations earlier about the power of prayer and about its contribution to physical and spiritual healing now in verse 16 The natural conclusion, the logical progression would be to pray even more, particularly with one another in corporate prayer. You see, just as James readily assumes that there exists within churches, a ministry where elders are called to anoint and pray for the sick. He also assumes that there exists many occasions within a church for corporate prayer and not just within families, Not just within small groups, but between congregation members coming together to confess sins and to pray for one another. See, whenever you read those one another commands in the New Testament, they're always set in the context of the whole congregation doing these things together. So as a congregation we really need to ask ourselves whether we are giving due attention to this apostolic command to gather together corporately, to confess our sins to one another and to pray for one another. You know, I think it's great how even during this pandemic, it has caused us to start some new initiatives, like starting a congregational prayer meeting on Wednesday nights over zoom. It's really convenient to gather for prayer right now, but will it still be a priority when we eventually return to our church building? And even these convenient online prayer meetings are still not all that well attended considering how we have over 250 members in our English congregation. And so I wonder what James would say to us if he were writing this letter to our church, would he be shocked that his assumptions of our church are proven wrong that we don't have regular occasions for corporate prayer. Let it not be said of us. Let's make it a priority to gather and to pray together. And if Wednesday nights don't work for you and your schedule, then let me know. And and perhaps we can schedule more prayer meetings at other time slots in order to accommodate more people in our congregation to pray with each other. Friends, the main thing I I want you to notice is how attention is being shifted here in verse 16 from elders to the entire congregation. That's a needed reminder that the power to heal does not reside in the office of an elder or within any gifted individual, but the power lies in God himself. And all believers collectively have access and responsibility um, to to tap into God's own power as we pray for one another in a corporate setting. that leads to our second point. I know we spent a good chunk of time considering the occasions for prayer in the life of a church, but now let's talk about the power of prayer that is available to all believers, to all members of the congregation. That's the point that James stresses here in verses 16 to 18 listen to the second half of verse 16 the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working now let me say a few things about the power of prayer i know that phrase is thrown around quite a bit even among non-christians even among people of other religions or even those who who claim to be non-religious yet spiritual they talk about the power of prayer so When we as Christians use the same phrase, when we talk about the power of prayer, we need to define what we mean. Well, we are not suggesting friends that there is power in the practice of prayer itself. Just going through the motions, just saying the words is powerless in itself. The power lies not in the practice of prayer, but in the object of prayer. In our case, The object of our prayers is the triune God. This is why James says in verse 15, that it's not just prayer that's going to save the one who is sick, but it's the prayer of faith implied. There is the Christian faith, faith in God, the father in God, the son and God, the Holy spirit. We also need to stress that the power of prayer is not found in the strength of your faith but the object of your faith. And so it's not about how strongly you believe that God is going to heal this person you're praying for, but it's about how strong you believe God is to be a healing and saving God. Friends. I hope that is a huge relief for you because when we talk about prayers of faith, we are not talking about prayers without any doubts prayers that have no uncertainties, if that were the case, all of us would be discouraged because all of us deal with doubts and uncertainties to some degree, but that's not what the prayer of faith is. You see that, 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 father of the boy with the unclean spirit in Mark nine, he cried for himself, a true prayer of faith, even though it was tinged with doubt. Do you remember what he cried? I believe Help my unbelief. That is a cry of faith, but it still wrestles with unbelief, and yet it is truly a prayer that the Lord hears and responds to. So when the elders or when the congregation is praying for the sick, remember that their faith is not in the certainty of that healing, but in the certainty of God's sovereign purposes to do good and to do all things well. That means every prayer for healing should be offered with the humble acknowledgement that God's will will be done. And sometimes he does not will for a healing. Faithful elders and faithful congregations will always submit to God's sovereign purposes. Now, if we look back at verses 16 to 18, we see that James's point was to encourage all believers to pray prayers of faith, trusting that the same great power is available to all of us since it's not about the individual strength of our faith. But I know when it says uh, that the prayer of a righteous person has great faith, you're probably wondering if that describes you. Are you a righteous person? I think many of us would feel very hesitant to claim that title. And James goes on to use Elijah as an example of one who prayed fervently and, and then mighty things happened. He prayed and he had the power to shut the sky, to keep it from raining. That's, that's how his prayers worked. And that's a hard comparison. If we're supposed to pray like Elijah, but notice Now, James's whole point is that the prophet shares a nature like ours. He too was a man. He wasn't superhuman. Elijah shared in our weaknesses and in our sin. And yet God still used his prayers of faith to accomplish mighty feats. Why? Why is that? Well, it's not because of Elijah himself. It's because of what was in Elijah, or I should say, who was in Elijah? The stories of the prophet in the book of first Kings paints a clear picture that he was just a man, but he was a man filled with the spirit of God. It was the spirit of God at work in him who made his prayers so powerful and so effective. And friends, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this new covenant that Jesus established by his own blood that he shed for us on the cross. The good news is the promise of the Holy Spirit, that Jesus promises to give his spirit, not just the prophets, not just the kings, but to all of God's people. Every Christian, From the oldest, maturest, wisest believer to the newest, weakest, lowliest among us, all who are in Christ have the spirit of God in them. That same spirit that empowered Elijah's prayers to do mighty things, that same spirit resides in you if you are in Christ. And so when we speak of the power of prayer, remember that the power is not found inherently in you, but in the spirit of God who resides in you and who powerfully works through you and through your prayers. And the same applies when you read that phrase, righteous person, the prayers of a righteous person has great power. Well, friends that promise doesn't apply to only perfect people. That righteous person that James has in mind is not some kind of super Christian, but simply a believer who has been filled by the Holy Spirit and covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Those are the gifts of the gospel that are received by grace alone, through faith alone, the gift of the spirit and of the righteousness of Christ. So, yes, we do speak of the power of prayer, but please remember that it is not grounded in your righteousness, but in the righteousness of Christ, which is given to you as a gift of grace. Let me just give you an image that will hopefully help you to grasp the biblical picture of prayer. Picture with me, a newborn. That baby can't do anything for himself. He's totally helpless, totally useless. He can't do anything but cry. But it's that cry that moves the heart of his mother to come to his aid, to cradle him in her loving arms. Well, friends, what did you think prayer was? Did you think that prayer was some kind of accomplishment on your part? Did you not realize that prayer is essentially how we cry like infants to our father who is in heaven. That's why prayer is powerful. Even on the lips of the lowliest believer, the sickest, the weakest, the frailest of Christians can still whimper a cry of help and call. That's all it takes to call down the most powerful force in the world. The Lord of hosts, he hears and he responds to the cries of his children. That, my friends, is the kind of gospel promise that is going to drive us to our knees in prayer. Now, if we look back at verses 19 to 20, we see James concluding his letter with an exhortation to be on our knees, specifically for the sake of the spiritually sick and dying for those who have wandered away from the faith. Let me read that again. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So we're talking here about a person who previously belonged to the community of faith. That is at at least he or she at one point outwardly identified as a Christian. I think that's implied when it speaks of bringing the person back. So where do they wander to? Well, this idea of wandering from the truth could mean that they've come to embrace false teaching or they have come to embrace wicked behavior or maybe even both. Whatever it is, it's serious enough that it's tantamount to apostasy they have left the faith they have rejected the faith now i think it's important to remember that if someone has done this if they have wandered from the faith for good well then their wandering proves that their profession of faith was false in the first place scripture clearly teaches that the born again the true the children of god are eternally secure. The good shepherd, true, it is true that he may lose a sheep every so often, but he always goes after them and he always finds them. That means no Christian will ever wander away for good. If he or she is truly one of Jesus's sheep, Jesus will find them and bring them home. So that truth The doctrine of eternal security is what really gives us the confidence to pray for and to warn that wanderer, knowing that our humble efforts to bring back a sinner from his wandering could very well be the human means by which the good shepherd will find and bring home his sheep. Now, I think the point of ending the letter with this concern for spiritual lostness, I think it really helps put everything in proper perspective. Because sickness, as we've been talking about, is a serious matter. And praying for healing is of grave importance. But a lost soul should burden us infinitely more. Now, maybe some of you listening right now are new to Christianity and you're still trying to figure out what exactly you believe and And perhaps this search that you're on was triggered by some need, some problem you're facing and that you're hoping to resolve. It could be health related or maybe it's relational or or, or financial, whatever it is, you are now open to prayer. You're willing to give it a try because you're really hoping that God is going to come through for you. Well, friend, I encourage you to pray for that healing. Pray for that divine intervention. Pray for God to to alleviate whatever physical or emotional suffering is in your life. But friend, do not overlook the needs of your soul. It's your soul that God is most concerned for. Don't ignore the reality of eternal suffering that is waiting for those who have not turned to Christ for the saving and healing of the soul. So come to Christ today. His love can cover a multitude of sins. Let me pray for all of us. Father, I thank you that we can even come to you in these ways through the form of prayer. We often take it for granted. We just talk to you as if it is something so natural to us, for those of us who have been walking with you for many years. But we are reminded today that prayer is a precious gift that was purchased for us through the blood of your son, Jesus Christ. So we owe all to Christ and we pray these prayers in faith in Christ's name. And I want to pray for those who are still seeking and still searching. I pray, Lord, that you would graciously grant their prayers, bring that healing, bring that restoration, whatever it is. But more importantly, oh Lord, may you grant them the new birth. May you save their souls. May you change them from inside out. Oh Lord, Lord, Thank you for doing that in our lives as your people. And so we respond to you now in a song of praise, praying our gratitude to you in Jesus name. Amen.